Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks given to the Farnham U3A World History Group. In this talk, Lorna Thomas tells us about remedies from days past. Many of these remedies will be familiar to many of us. They were commonly used when we were younger, and some are still in use today. This morning is a light-hearted look, uh, not too serious, a light-hearted look at some of the remedies that we were probably familiar with in our childhood. I'm not going back, way back in history to medieval times or to bills of mortality or any remedies like that. This is stuff that hopefully you and I remember, and you will probably remember far more than me. So it began really prompted by this awful virus that we have with us at the moment and being told to wash our hands. It occurred to me that despite all developments in modern technology, despite mankind walking on the moon, despite thankfully cures for terrible cancers and other debilitating diseases, despite artificial intelligence, voice recognition and miniature computers, and computers that can calculate more in the blink of an eye than I'll ever learn in a lifetime, our frontline defence is washing hands. And I don't know about you, but when I was a young girl, it was the first thing that was said to me as soon as I came through the door, go and wash your hands before every meal. Go and wash your hands. You didn't sit down to dinner, tea or anything else without washing your hands first. And I note sitting down to dinner, something back in the day when that we all had to do. You sat to a meal, as my mother would point out to me, it was only cattle and sheep that ate on the hoof. That was the, the prompt for doing this. And I started then thinking of what did we used to do in those bygone days? This is a quick trot through some of the remedies that I remember. As I said, I'm sure you've got a lot more, but I'm going to start off with the one that I hated the most. This stirs passionate memories of absolute terror. It was a substance called viral. It came in a brown jar. Now that was ominous to begin with because you know, if, if it was any good, it had a clear jar. Anything that needed covering up came in, in something thick and brown. And so this was an ominous start. The reason why I was given viral was my mother loved me dearly, but uh, she was trying to fatten me up because I was incredibly skinny and a scrawny little kid. I know to look at me now, it, it doesn't uh, bear thinking of, and I've made up for lost time. But bouts of bronchitis and even pneumonia as a very young child meant that I didn't have much appetite, didn't eat a lot, and therefore was very skinny. And a well-meaning neighbour said to my mum, try viral. Well, I don't know if any of you have seen the film Nanny McPhee. It was more like a scene from Nanny McPhee of being fed, force fed, on a large spoon, a revolting concoction, rather like to the children who'd got spots all over their face. This was supposed to have health benefits, as you can see from the advertisement there in the slide. To me, that was a travesty of the Trades Description Act. However, Back to its earliest beginnings, its sort of pedigree, its 
dates back to 1899 and it came in a stone jar initially and I have to say that our house plants thrived at home. My mum, bless her, trying to make it easier to swallow, tried mixing it with water or with milk but that meant I'd got to take three or four gulps at it uh, instead of one. And it, while she wasn't looking, I would put that down for the house plants, or it would go out the window or anywhere else that would take it down the drain pipe rather than down my gullet. Repulsive stuff. It was thick, brown, treacly substance, horribly sweet, revoltingly so. But as I say, it dated back to 1899 when it was produced experimentally by the Bovril Company. There's some of its what is said to be good about it, though I, I honestly couldn't find very much good about it. It's said to be made from malt extract, a refined beef fat, which in effect meant bone marrow, eggs, sugars, including glucose and orange juice, and added minerals and vitamins. Well, I can assure you, you couldn't taste the um, the orange juice at all. That would have been attractive. And I quite thought it should have been banned by the Geneva Convention. However, it was produced by the Bovril Company in their Old Street factory in London. By the 1900s, surprisingly to me, demand grew and a Bovril decided to make Viral a separate company and they produced it at a different factory and Viral moved to a larger factory at Perivale in Middlesex. And just before the Second World War, it was associated with the Ambrosia Company and became a rival for Horlicks, which I will come on to in, in a moment. Some of you may well remember that. I think this is one of the advertisements for viral, and I don't think that would be allowed today. I'm sure that whoever dreamed that one up would probably be arrested as a potential paedophile. However, it, uh, it made extravagant claims that give a child this and they would turn out to be beautiful. Obviously, that didn't work for me. But however, I mentioned Horlicks. Let's move on from viral. Do any of you remember Horlicks? It's still available today. It has, like a lot of other drinks, lots of other different flavours to it. But Horlicks was developed by the brothers James and William Horlicks back in 1870. And it was sent to frontline soldiers in both world wars and, of course, still popular. Another remedy was cod liver oil. That was uh, something else that was turned to. That, at the time when I was a, a little one, was in liquid form, equally revolting. But thank goodness today it comes supplied in capsules. And as Michael reminded me, syrup of figs should be added to this list. I can remember other members of the family, when the need arose, taking liquid paraffin. They took it as a laxative which quite frankly, when I was a small child, I took a look at them in absolute horror because I sort of expected uh, instant self-combustion because I associated paraffin with those little portable paraffin heaters that we used to have in severe winters to stop the pipes from freezing over. So what, what were these mad grown-ups doing in, in actually swallowing liquid paraffin. Of course, I didn't appreciate that, of course, it's a refined mineral oil that's suitable for many skincare products and is used even today in cosmetics and other pharmaceutical applications, but also as a laxative. Coming on to which, I'm sure some of you maybe experience licorice root and licorice powder. 
Licorice was far more palatable. I quite like licorice more as a sweet than anything else. And the other thing that accompanied on, on a similar note, similar theme, do any of you remember centipods? It was a little drastic, but it was quite favoured by, by grown-ups. For juniors, and I don't know again if you remember this one, Milk of Magnesia. And it came in a blue bottle with a picture of a nurse-looking sort of person on the front. And it was a white, chilky substance. Going on to cuts and bruises, very often turned to germaline. That's its sort of 21st century modern glossy look. But it was a brand of antiseptics that were produced by the Bayer Company, which in 1999 was brought out by Smith Klein Beecham. It was originally a thick antiseptic ointment with a distinctive pink colour, and it was scented with wintergreen. Germaline was also formulated into a white cream, and it was sold under that brand name as an over-the-counter first aid preparation for quite a long time. There's also a line that is specifically for the treatment of hemorrhoids. Germaline was invented uh, by the cough mixture tycoon, Sir William Henry Vino. In 1925, he feared that he had cancer of the lips, so he sold the Vino drug company to Beecham's. And, and there's a picture of the original Vino cough mixture on the left. And of course, today it's still going, uh, still being sold by Beecham's as one of their popular lines for cough relief of tickly coughs and all sorts of other sort of coughs. And its competitor, Germaline's competitor, was Savlon. And again, there's a picture still used today, and I've still got some in my cupboard. On to other, more smellier notes. Uh, do any of you remember white horse oils and Goddard's embrocation? Goddard's embrocation was established in 1880, and it was formerly branded as white horse oils, which was used for painful joints, backache and lumbago, and applied to the painful area on the body, but it would stink the entire house out. And everyone in the street, I should think, was well aware of it. It was a little bit like, as Victor Meldrew said of TCP, it had a, a shelf life of Strong Team 90. If you had any minor burns in our house, mum always turned to bicarbonate of soda, which she used to use in cooking, but also for little small burns. And she would put some of the powder on a teaspoon, add a few drops of cold water, and it would turn to a sort of mushy consistency. Place it on the burn, wind it round with a bandage, and you'd sort of troll around the house for a while to stop it from blistering. It was quite effective. The only problem was you'd leave a trail of white powder because as the bicarbonate of soda dried, it dried white powder again. So interesting but uh, and different. And on that note, uh, again, we didn't have bandages. We didn't go to Boots or anywhere like that to buy bandages. We always had to cut up old pillowcases or old sheets that had become torn and they'd be washed at high temperature, of course, and then torn up into strips. And so if I ever cut my knee as a child, you didn't, as I say, have a posh bandage. You had a strip of sheet wound around the knee or elbow or whatever it was. So next on to the list, the common cold. Anyone remember camphorated oil? It can still be brought today in, in, in that form. And that was dropped into a bowl of hot water and a towel placed over your head and you had to sniff in the vapours. The camphorated oil itself comes from root stumps of chipped wood and branches from the camphor tree. 
camphorated oil itself has been around for many centuries and is traditionally still used in Chinese and Indian medicine. It comes, I didn't realise, but it comes in four different colours, white, yellow, blue and brown, but only white camphor is used for medical and aromatherapy purposes and it relieves congestion and respiratory issues. It's also one of the main ingredients for Vicks Vapor Rub, which, of course, we are still familiar with today. Next, Friar's Balsam or Eucalyptus Oil did similar things to uh, to Vicks or, or to camphorated oil, used as a vapour to inhale to try and ease congestion if you had a cold. And Eucalyptus was also used as an insect repellent. I can remember taking that on holidays and having that smarmed over me if there were any gnats around. So yes, eucalyptus oil. Still with the common cold, glycerine, lemon and honey. I think a lot of people still today turn to honey and lemon. It's not so easy to get the glycerine across the counter these days. I suppose too many misuses for things. But my mother used to add glycerine because she always said it used to break up the phlegm of a chesty cold. And you just squeeze some lemon juice and a large dollop of honey, swirled it around with some hot water and it, uh, it's actually quite a nice relief to a chesty cold. Glycerine itself, of course, is an odourless, colourless, oily, viscous liquid. It does have a slight sweet taste and is used by manufacturers in a lot of food products, nutritional supplements, uh, pharmaceutical products, etc., and even oral care products. It's also used as a sweetener in syrups and lozenges, and I give them to understand that it's also used in eye wash solutions. So glycerine, lemon and honey was very much a, a turn to whenever anyone was, was ill and those are just a few of the things that I remember from my childhood. But before leaving the subject completely, I'd got to remember recycling. I need to touch upon it because it's a little hobby horse, I think, of mine. So before leaving the subject of reminiscences, I don't know about you, but nothing in our household was ever wasted. Rubber bands were never thrown away. You always kept those. And paper clips, safety pins dressmaking pins because do you remember men's shirts used to come with pins stuck in them to keep the folds in place so those pins were always kept by both my mother and my grandmother for dressmaking butter papers were reused for greasing tins or lining cake tins and if a parcel arrived through the door and it was tied with string string wasn't just cut randomly it was very carefully removed and rolled up and, and used again the brown paper would be saved possibly ironed and used to cover my school textbooks and exercise books i don't again i don't know about you but every book when i went to grammar school every textbook given out at the beginning of term was issued with a serial number your name against it you had to take it home and it had to be covered by the next lesson preferably in brown paper and if no brown paper was available then old wallpaper would do and if you didn't do either of those you got a detention Sauce bottles, uh, they were rinsed out with hot water and used in sauces and stews. Stale bread, if we ever got to the stale bread stage, my mum used to make wonderful bread puddings. If she did have some leftovers, it would be broken up, put on a baking sheet and placed in the oven to make breadcrumbs. 
we didn't ever buy packs of breadcrumbs. So those are just a few thoughts that to me, recycling, despite younger people's impression, is not the invention of the 21st century. We've been doing it for a very long time. So a brief talk, a brief chat through, what are your remembrances of when you were young? This podcast has been produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening.